Hi there. You're listening to One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This podcast is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Online at 107.com. We all have a story, don't we? We've all had successes and failures, joy and disappointment, love and sadness. And yet, we've all made it to here, to right now. Our stories are one amongst eight billion others, eight billion other stories, each of them unique, each of them grand in their own way, and each of them a window into the humanity that connects us all. One of Eight Billion tells life stories from around the world. Let's listen. Our story today is about Merlin Mann, a writer and podcaster who is perhaps best known as the Inbox Zero guy. Today, Merlin is focused on collecting bits of wisdom and reimagining the relationships we have with work, with each other, and with the planet. Let's listen. Welcome to One of Eight Billion. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell me your name and where you are in the world right now. I'm Merlin Mann, and right now, uh, what I do for work most of the time right now is I make podcasts. I also like to write things. And as far as my now, what is my now? I have to pay pal some money to my shrink and I need to <laughs> pick up a prescription. And inevitably I will go home and my family and I will look at each other and say, I wonder what we'll have for dinner tonight. And we'll all just stare blankly. That's mainly it. No, just in general, I do podcasts. That's uh, something I fell backwards into. And I also, I have a writing project that I'm working on right now, but my, I think of myself I don't know. I think of myself as a writer, but in terms of what I produce most these days for work, it's podcasts. That's really interesting. You Kenji sure? Lopez. You sure that's oh. interesting? No, it is. I'll tell you why it's interesting. It's interesting because when I talked to Kenji Lopez Alt, I thought of him as a chef. I thought of him as a cook. I thought of him as someone who he's videos a scientist. He, that guy's a scientist. And then I thought he's a scientist. You know what he he's said? Totally he a said, scientist. I'm a, he said, I'm a writer. I'm an author. That's what I am. I discovered him because a few years ago for Father's Day, my family gave me a sous vide wand, which is mm. for doing immersive. You've probably seen Richard Blaze do it on Top Chef. And it changed my life. But I discovered, is it Good Eats, I guess? In the New York Times, I discovered his stuff. Yep. Eventually got his cookbook. Seriously. I love, seriously, that's it. Yeah. He, I love his videos and I love his curiosity where he'll just mention in passing sometimes, oh yeah, I've tried... Here's all the different ways you can boil an egg. I've tried all of them. And here's what I think is the best way. And I'll tell you why. Where like he has such a genuine curiosity about doing the work to take something that uh, there's a lot of intuition to being a good cook, clearly. Mm -hmm. I hear you what you're saying about him saying he's a writer, but he also has not just a, the mind of a scientist, but he totally is really a scientist as well. Do Absolutely. you think so? Yeah. He feels, it yeah. feels like he. Yeah, yeah. But he even, it isn't even just going, I'm going to try this one thing and maybe this other thing. He actually seems to go into it with a lot more rigorous model or plan for how he's going to test something than probably a lot of people doing science. And the results <laughs> are the results are terrific. And that does nothing to harm intuition, but it also gives you a pretty good idea. I mean, do you like cooking? I do love cooking and actually Kenji was the reason I started to get into it right at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Like, and so almost like anyone can know? cook. Like he, he gives you that feeling. There's this guy. What is the this guy I discovered via appearances on NPR? I think his name's Harold something. And he wrote this mm. wonderful book about the science of cooking. And it's way more interesting than I make it sound. You know, describing the whatever the name is for that effect where you brown something, doing sugar does this. It's so fascinating to read about why things taste good and why on food and cooking by Harold McGee. 
it's a good book for you to treat yourself to, but it's also a great gift for the food, yeah. like the cooking nerd in your life. I think that stuff is really interesting. But yeah, I, that guy's a hero of mine. I think he's cool. Yeah, my wife and I watch his videos and I'm always like, oh man, I hope he gives some to the dogs. And then he gives some to the dogs. <laughs> and he gives it to the dogs. I know. He's, the, he's great. <laughs> I think he went to MIT, if I remember correctly, from the podcast. And his dad is a chemist. He's, He's a, a good storyteller. Story he was on an episode of a podcast, yeah. maybe Planet Money or something like that. I I guess perhaps unsurprisingly enjoy podcasts. But he told the story <laughs> of sort of debacle of this, not debacle, but the difficulties of this restaurant that he was running down the road from here, down in San Mateo. Worst uh, hole. Yeah, about the sausages yeah, and the yeah, bread and all mm-hmm, of the things. Mm-hmm. And he's he told that story so well and not like a boohoo for me thing, but I don't know. I have this bee in my bonnet sometimes where... There's a phrase people use sometimes. I think that people aren't unintentionally hurtful or stupid when they say this, but sometimes somebody will say, blah, 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 I have a problem. And then somebody else goes, why don't you just that? And it's like, just assume that people are smart. But in his case, I think a good way to improve as a human being is to stop saying junk like, why don't you just, and instead develop a curiosity about why a problem hasn't already been solved. All the easy problems were solved millennia ago. It's the difficult problems, the evolving problems, Mm -hmm. those moving targets that we have to chase. And I have a lot of curiosity in what makes some, not not necessarily just whether something's difficult, but what makes it difficult. Because if it's difficult, there's also a pretty good chance that it's complex or complicated. And like hearing people unravel like what you didn't know about why this job is not what it seems is always fascinating to me. Always. Wouldn't it be great if there was a Bible or a document out there that like put all the wisdom that people have learned together onto one page? That's a really good idea. John Hodgman did that in some ways with the areas of my expertise, but which contains all world knowledge, all human knowledge. But uh, yeah, that would be a good idea. We should, and you could put it on GitHub where people could read it. Yeah, that's a good yeah, idea. I like the Wisdom Doc <laughs> Project. Did you know anything about that? I think I saw Come that the on, other day. <laughs> I want to that... ask about. I want to mm. ask about that. Oh no. Well, I love yeah. that project. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I'll talk all you that one. That's like talking about my kid. I'll talk about that all day. Yeah, but um, tell me, tell, tell yeah, for sure. those of us that don't know exactly what it is, would you describe the Wisdom Project? Yeah, yeah, the Wisdom Project. So the genesis of this is one of the podcasts that I do is called Do by Friday, and the nominal idea of the podcast. This is as Hitchcock would call it a MacGuffin. But the idea is that each week we challenge each other when we finish one episode, then for the next week we challenge each other to do something. A lot of times it's just to watch a TV show, read a book or whatever. Sometimes it's a little more outlandish and involves gadgets and gimmickry. But what was it? Oh, the challenge was to use this app called Craft, which is a really cool kind of personal acknowledgement app. The neat part was, and this is a theme in my life, was like, okay, I've just been handed a glass now, what do I want to put into that glass? Is it going to be is it going to be red wine? Is it going to be water? I don't know. All I know is I've got this glass. And in that instance, I immediately had this idea of this thing that had been banging around in my head of there's all this stuff I've been bad at. And I think this is an okay, this is an important part to this project that I feel gets can get lost in the lights as we say. Is that everything in that document is stuff that I've had to learn over time and where in a way that's maybe not obvious, the Wisdom Project is a public disclosure of all the stuff I've needed help with. And sometimes I've gotten a piece of good advice or I've learned something, often things that help me reframe something I thought I understood to turn it into something that hopefully made me a little better, specifically at a given thing I'm bad at. But also the big mission is to become a sort of a better person. And so, yeah, it started out and, and uh, contra all the ways that I usually derail myself with any project, I said, look, here's the thing. Here's the rule from hour zero of this project is that it's a bulleted list. I use a subset of HTML called Markdown. And so an mm-hmm. asterisk, write some stuff, hit return. New asterisk, write some stuff, hit return. And there's now I've got, it's not a lot, although I spend more time on it than is obvious in reading it. But yeah, now I've got 300 bullets. It's, I don't know, 5,000 words. I don't know. It's, but it's a living document that I did put up as a repository on GitHub where on on an occasional basis, I update that document, completed draft idea of something. And like, for example, the very first one on the list is just something as simple as sometimes an email is just a way to say, I love you. 
which mm. now why would you say that? I used to get really mad about email. I would get really frustrated with people who were like sending me lots of email and like wanting me to engage. And that just in other areas, I'll talk about how it doesn't scale up. You can't treat everybody the same way in life or you become a monster. Mm -hmm. but, but what I had to learn was before you get mad about an email, consider that that might be that person's way of saying I love you. Even if they're writing you hate mail to say I used to like what you did and now I don't, that's a belated love letter. It just mm -hmm. it got sent a lot mm -hmm. later than you might have liked or when it would have been useful. I don't <laughs> the send timing was of, a little off. <laughs> I don't send a ton of those personally because of other things in the Wisdom Project. Yeah, but it's just a bunch of bullets. And I love this project. It's so fun to do. I have weird ambitions for what I want to actually do with it. But it's so fun to do. And I don't know if you ever get this in life. I'm a big believer in long before we had iPhones, even back when we just had PDAs, I'm a big believer in writing stuff down, like whether that's mm -hmm. stuff I'm supposed to do, you know, like hey, I have an item with a to-do list, which is pay my shrink. I believe in writing stuff down. And once you give yourself permission to write things down, when you start, in my case, I used to carry around like index cards and a space pen, like you now have a glass. The corollary of what we've talked about a minute ago, now you've got content and there's always a glass. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what's neat is, I don't know if that makes sense, but like I now have a place where that stuff can go because I, I, I used to be in the self-help. Well, I was in the self-help bracket for a long time with a blog that I used to do. And I still think about and talk about stuff a lot, whether it's Mac applications or how to be less of a turd with people in life. And I've got a place where that can go now where I can jot down some half thought idea and then return to it and develop it a little bit. And it's a project for me. Do you have a favorite one? If you could only choose one, which one's your yeah. favorite? Probably. It would, again, it's like Beatles albums where it'll vary depending on the day, but I won't be able to do it from memory, but it'll be close enough. Remember that your kids are not little versions of you. They are little versions of themselves. And that your kid, every time your kid becomes something that you are not or becomes maybe more saliently, every time your kid maybe even briefly, become something you didn't expect, not only don't be surprised, but be supportive and celebrate it. Because in the end, your kid will become lots of things that are not you. And that's the entire point. And that's the whole beauty of it. I love that. That is poignant. There's some other ones that are like fairly specific. Replace your soap in the shower more often. Listen to a record <laughs> you like. Listen to a record you like when you're 14. You read that and go, oh, that makes sense. But no, seriously, go put on a record you like when you're 14, Spotify or whatever. It'll make you so happy. And the little things like that, it's interesting because it's got rails. Not rest the wrong, that's a term of art, but it's got guardrails in that I don't want them to be too long. It could be as long as a short paragraph, but many are as short as say thank you and hold the door. I love the brevity. Let's go back to where life started for you. You're a 60s baby, I think. Where were you born and what did those circumstances look like? My parents had intercourse nine months before November. Let's not go that far back. Well, how'd you get made? You don't say. You're not going to say. Maybe they found yes. you. Maybe they found you. Maybe you were donated. Uh, we'll get you out of the lost. Maybe there lots, there's lots of ways. There's lots. Yeah, my daughter is an IVF baby. Yeah. I was born, I'm told that I was born in Cincinnati in the mid 60s. And I lived in Cincinnati, grew up there until I was about 12. And then with my family moved to Florida and did stuff there. And then I moved to San Francisco in 1999. So, yep, all started at Jewish Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. You're not a sports fan, are you? I used to be. Yeah. Oh, talking about and the Reds? So, yeah. Dude, they, they you, you grew up in the States mostly, right? Mostly. Half, a little more than half of my life. Back so in the I'm day. A, before, back in the back, day. Here's the thing, though. Back before it was all about screen in every room, you'd have the AV person would come and wheel in this cart with a giant CRT TV on it. If it was, if you're going to watch a, this is a big development from like film strips and stuff. They eventually got TVs and I'll never forget uh, third grade, probably 1975 rolling that into the room so that we could watch the Cincinnati Reds, the parade after they uh, beat the Red Sox in 75. And so 70, the Cincinnati Reds in the seventies, big red machine. It was a pretty amazing thing to be there for. Wow. Do you still support them? Oh, I support everyone. I want everyone to be happy, but no, like I had to, again, for Dubai Friday, the challenge last week was to watch Friday Night Baseball on Apple TV Plus 
And I was just yeah. like, Pfft. it was like, <laughs> it's just so much data flying around on the screens. And this is a few days after the Dodgers, the great Dodgers broadcaster, Vin Scully had passed away. And yeah. I was already thinking a lot about what an elegant man Vin Scully was, where not only could, when he spoke, it was the most beautiful like calling of a game you've ever heard. Cause I, I grew up in a time where you'd bring a transistor radio to the game and listen to that while you were watching it up in the, up in the red seats, all the way up in the crappiest seats. But um, you know, when Sandy Koufax had his perfect game, he stops talking and all you hear is the crowd screaming. Mm. That was the, the opposite of that <laughs> was yeah. watching Friday night baseball because <laughs> but it was the red. So I was excited and Oh my God, the, all the shots are too tight. Are you supposed to watch this on an iPhone? What is this? It doesn't have any of that elegance. I, it shouldn't feel stressful to watch sports if no, you're not a fan. I get that. Oh, it's interesting. I went hmm. to a Twins game a couple months ago. Do, do you live in Twin Cities? Okay, cool. Beautiful area. Yeah. I love that area. It's lovely. Yeah, I landed here by mistake, took a job when I was in South Africa, and it couldn't have been a better decision in retrospect. So I love it here. Yeah, I was up there. Why um, was I there? I must have been there for maybe a talk or something, but like... I'm not picking sides. One of my favorite bands is The Replacements, who I think is from Minneapolis in particular. Yep. But yep. I thought St. Paul, I saw St. Paul on a pretty day, and I was like, this place is... Now, I understand it gets cold there, though. It gets so cold. <laughs> really chilly. cold. A little bit chilly. Yeah, 20 degrees, <laughs> 30 degrees below. It's not but you got joke. The Replacements saying, but you got the Skyway. It goes between the buildings. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Everything, yep. everything I know about America has been learned from pop culture, so I apologize. No, that's okay. I was at the Twins game a couple months ago, and I thought, what a great idea. Take an FM radio downtown and listen to the commentators while they are calling the game. It turns out even the FM signal is delayed, and you can't oh, get... Because wow. of yeah, satellites, I bet. Must be. I used to like to watch TV with listening to a stereo broadcast over it. And it was like, like I remember mm -hmm. watching Bill Clinton's accepting the nomination in 1992. And back then you could turn on the stereo and tune into the station where it played stereo and it worked perfectly. None of that works anymore. I can't, yeah. public radio is playing at different places in the broadcast in every room of the house sometimes. That's weird to lose yeah, that, Yeah, it is weird. And I thought, I just gave up within 10 seconds. Oh, I just sucks. couldn't handle it. Everything was... Oh. So my, my hack is to try to get a chair that's as close to the broadcast booth as possible, and maybe you get a chance to hear them talking. But oh, that is cool. Work. It doesn't work very well all the time. Well, and that's got a lot of factors you don't control, so maybe it probably doesn't work for every game. So we talked a little bit about the Wisdom Project. We talked about yep. your early beginning. When Birth, you were, Wisdom. Yep, all that stuff. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Did you have hmm. ideas about thinking about the future? And did you have any role models or anything like that? Oh, sure. Yeah, like one of my favorite childhood stories ever. One of the greatest days of my entire childhood was, to cut a long story short, through, through some wonderful good luck and a very kind person, I was able to meet Steve Garvey in the 1979 Dodgers in the, in the locker room when I was 12. I got to meet Steve wow. Garvey. I met Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was amazing. So wait, what's the question? Where, I'll give an example of like d dear friends of mine from college, from liberal arts school, just always knew they were going to be, I went to a, a liberal arts school where there were not that, that, that many people who knew they were going to be. What am I answering? <laughs> you were answering the question of what did you want to be when you were a kid? And if you had any, anyone you looked up to. There's a funny thing in life, medical doctors. It was not what that school was good at preparing you for, but there were a lot of people who knew they were going to be lawyers. And one of my, one of my really good friends in college, a year older than I, who was the, the president of our class and one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He always knew he was going to be a lawyer. It was like, no duh. And he went to law school, which I'm given to believe is a lot of work. And it wasn't until he graduated that and was actually working in a law office that he realized how much he hated being, basically how much he hated being around other lawyers, how much he disliked. And no offense, but like his, he had thought about the practice of law because he's a great reader. He's a great writer. He's, a, as it happened, a really good thinker. But the part he had not controlled for was the environment that he would be in and what the actual job would be like. I say that because when you asked me what I want to be, I didn't have any idea what anything was. My dad mm. was a sporting goods buyer for a very small local department store 
uh, chain in Cincinnati. And my mom sold real estate and you know, neither of those was very appealing. So it was very, on the one hand, very mercantile or very personal. So it was very mercantile. When I, when I learned that public CPAs, the accountants, made over accountants, $3. Yeah. yeah, when I heard that accountants make over $3 an hour, I was like, whoa, I want to be an accountant. And I would sit around and I could tell I was going to be good as an accountant because back before we had spreadsheets, we had like profit and loss cash balance forms. My mom had some of those around uh, for bookkeeping. And I would calculate in the absence of autofill from Excel, I would calculate how much money. If I work for 22 hours a day, I'll make this much money. What the hell do I know? I wasn't even that good at arithmetic. There's, so there's the things where you're like, oh, I want that because it makes a lot of money. This is the phase, by the way, that my kid is in, is trying to figure out like what job you make millions of dollars at uh, just as a lark. But then there's also the more personal ones, which is I wanted to, at one point I wanted to be a minister because we went to mm. a uh, non-denominational Protestant Christian church in Ohio that had been very, was very, they were very good to us and my family. And after my father passed away, this church had been like incredibly supportive and was very involved as a young person in church life. So those kinds of things and everything apart from that was just the kind of st like stupid stuff. Like I wanted to be Fonzie or something. Mm -hmm. And then to be mm -hmm. honest, I don't think my understanding of any of that matured very much at all beyond the need to make money and a thing I thought I'd like doing. I don't know. Maybe an early thing is I got that book, What Color Is Your Parachute, which is about resumes and stuff. But I remember, okay, you know, this is a wisdom project level thought, which is that the things people want to hire you for, learn the things people might want to hire you for. And instead of thinking about you telling them what you should do, you find out what they need. This is really good grown-up stuff that didn't fall into my, didn't go over my transom until I was probably in my 20s. And having to really think about, I got a bachelor's degree. What am I going to do? And as it happened, that was a pretty good time to be thinking about. I was a cultural studies major. I made up my own mm. major. I thought I wanted to be a philosophy major. Then I thought I wanted to be a literature major. I didn't have enough language for that. And eventually I found an academic sponsor who would let me make up my own, which is basically about a really dumbed down Marxist idea of TV and how ideology works. But so what do I do? What am I going to do with that degree? Oh, you want to read my thesis about the Soloflex infomercial and Bill Cosby? No. And so it was such an interesting time that it come out because, you know, the, the economy was not terrific in 1990 when I graduated. But what ended up being funny is that almost all of my closest friends got into what would become new media. So that could be mm. I had a friend like friends who made content for CD-ROMs or in that case, Philips CDI was really big where I lived in Tallahassee. But also like in my case, I became, I was doing mostly graphics on a Mac in, in litigation support. How did I know how to do graphics on a Mac? I, because at the time that was still a pretty exotic skill. And the right. whole reason I to do that was why? Because I'd learned Macs and PageMaker, which is a layout program. I'd learned in college to like work on a like phony baloney literary. Like you don't, it wasn't from the kind of, family. We, we were not a family of means where everybody went to college. There was no certainty at all about pretty much anything in my future. And not in a bad way, but like I had never, I was not, I was never encouraged to be the sort of person who goes, well, decide what you're, it's like the Soviet Union in the seventies. We're going to give you a test when you're 12, you find out what you're going to be. And then that's the track for the rest of your life. It wasn't until later that I realized, first of all, it isn't just a matter of what I want to do in my head. It's what people need or want. And really something we can all learn about all other people is that the thing we like to think about ourselves or the thing that we think is positive about ourselves may not be the thing that other people see as positive. And yeah. it's, I think, wish, I'm grateful that eventually came along to me, but, you know, going into college because that's what you do, you come out of college with this weird degree from a weird liberal arts school. And then I ended up making stuff in freehand, making stuff in PageMaker and Quark. And then eventually things really took a turn when I lost that job. I got fired from that job, thankfully, and I started doing web pages for people. And back then, 1995, 96, my first job was explaining to what, them what a web page was and why they might want one which was really a long way from even five years earlier, what I imagined. Something I've said in talks over the years, and then I'll shut up. Something I've said in talks for a long time is like people my age, I know it's even more crazy now, 
but like almost nobody I know has a job that existed before they were born, let alone when they were in college. Most of us are doing some kind of work through media or through technologies. If you're a plumber, your world has changed. You spend so much more time on your telephone as a plumber now than you did in the 60s. On the one hand, I feel like a lunkhead that I didn't realize stuff like that earlier, but it's also, I think it can be a comfort. It can be a balm to realize you're capable of more than you realize and that you end up, I sound like a motivational speaker here, but I think you end up constraining yourself with your own ideas of who you used to be and who you feel like people used to want you to be. It sounds like freedom. Everything you described and not having a kind of harrowing and existential freedom. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Freedom to do what you feel like. Freedom freedom to be who you are. But that's another, okay, you're already on to another good example here, which is that, okay, so this is a fairly recent thing from the Wisdom Project, forgive me, is that something I found myself saying to a pal of mine recently, and I was like, oh, that's good. I'll put that in the document, which is there's a big difference between independent work and creative work. There's been a conflation of that uh, probably in some ways since work from home kicked in. But really, the, I think that there's a conflation that people make where they say like, oh, you work on your own. You must be so happy. You do your own thing. It's so creative and you're independent. And the admittedly breezy thing that I may cut out at some point is that a surprising amount of independent work is very uncreative. And a surprising amount of creative work is like very much dependent on, they're, they're really different kinds of things. Yeah. So when mm-hmm. people think, oh, you're doing your own thing, you're on your own. Like I say, that's harrowing existential stuff. That's Camus and Sartre level stuff of like, I have, like nobody really has a safety net in life, but I know for sure that I don't have a safety net apart from what I can cobble together from month to month. And not just for money, but just for like certainty in the future. And what if, what are the kinds of things at one point you worry about your hand being ground up in machinery and you have to go on disability. And now today it's, if I'm sure a lot of people would love for me to lose my voice, I'd have to figure out something else. And I think there's something like all existential holes into which we stare, there is an upside to realizing that freedom is there. It's not always an exhilarating freedom. Sometimes it's a pants-crapping amount of freedom. But I think that's a valuable distinction to make. So after college and getting fired from that job, you find yourself in new media, you find yourself on the internet making web pages, and then somehow you end up being the inbox zero guy. And I remember that. I remember you writing about, I think, the demilitarized zone in, inbo- in the inbox. And I remember oh, yeah, the, the email DMZ, yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, man, select all delete. I'm going to, I'm going to declare inbox bankruptcy. I'm not even going to put it in another folder that I look at later. <laughs> right. And right. I also, I remember, or I, when I was doing some research today, I read that you that people have misunderstood and misinterpreted what you meant by inbox zero. And right. is that true? Or what's your perspective on that? Okay. First of all, yeah, the webpage stuff that led to doing, uh, working at a dot-com job. But yeah, to flash forward to 2004 is when I started 43 folders, which is the site we've been talking about where inbox zero was one of the features. The thing that frustrates me is what I perceive to be a willful misunderstanding of inbox zero Partly because it hurts my feelings a little bit, but mainly because I'm thinking, like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why? How could you? And, and in fairness, it's I, it's on me that has a clever, catchy name that makes it sound like you're supposed to sit at your computer until all your emails been responded to. And it's, dude, go reread. You can't reread it now because the site's all screwed up. But go reread the forty-five thousand words I had about email, and it includes stuff like, no, it takes a God more existentialism to quote Kierkegaard. It takes a great leap of faith to say I don't have a way to respond to all of this email. This all sounds very exotic today, but it sounded very exotic back then. Today, everybody's like, yeah, I don't even look at email anymore. I don't, I don't even know my, what email my kid uses outside of school. It's just not something young people really use, except mm-hmm. it's like the way you're, it's like accountants and lawyers that use fax machines, and therefore we use fax machines. Like the email today is mostly used by a more powerful person to exert control over a less powerful person. And the power differential is what enables that inbox to become such a source of frustration and terror for people. Because you never know what could be in there that I've said before. I sometimes feel like I wake up in the morning wondering who I didn't know I was disappointing. 
And email is a great mm. way to let people know how they've disappointed you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to answer your other question, though, is it other people's fault for misunderstanding it, or is it my fault for having a bad job of either writing or more likely brand management? But I still find it a little frustrating when people scream out Inbox Zero or we're like, I see some promising looking new email app for iPhone and open it up and every single one of them has some reference to Inbox Zero in it. I'm just like, oh my God, I feel like the guy at the wedding with the albatross around his neck. But no, but but also like, how can I be, how can I be miffed about that? That was a way a lot of people found out about that I exist. GTD. Oh, and GTD too, which is David Allen, not me, but it's very influenced by GTD for sure. I have over time found it frustrating for the reasons I've stated, but it's also that if there's anything like to the inbox zero idea that it's a bummer gets lost is that you cannot control the contents of that. It is by definition an inbox contains things that are unknown or like undone, unprocessed or solicited. Yeah, but I used to know this by memory when I didn't write a book. But like the way I look at it is if you think about what an inbox is, would you be checking an inbox if you knew to a certainty nothing was in it? You don't look at your cubby hole or or from elementary school. You don't look at the mailbox at a job you haven't had for 10 years. Well, obviously, Merlin. Yeah, but like why do you keep looking at your inbox so much and then not doing anything about it? Well, and the answer to that is I need to not feel the, I need the temporary relief of knowing there's nothing in here that's going to blow up before I go into this movie or before I go hang out with my family. Like I need to go make sure nothing's in there that will blow up, which tends to be a time when people also don't do anything about that email. So the, the part that's counterintuitive, the part that I think is a bummer that is lost in all of this inbox zero stuff is that is the learning how to accept that any inbox that you allow into your life is there because you allowed it in. Show me the lie. Well, I have to do it for my job. Yeah, but you chose to have that job. Nobody's standing mm-hmm. with a gun to your head. You've Every inbox in your life is something you've chosen to have there and to, I would argue, take care of. And so we need to limit the number of inboxes that we agree to do something about. And really, the real ninja thing that gets lost is, this is so disappointing. I wish I had a really good life hack for this. But you need to figure out what comfort level you can have with uncertainty in your life. And if you can't handle the idea of loose ends and you can't handle the idea of uncertainty and not knowing, it's going to be difficult to unhook and do anything apart from where your brain wants to be, which is, or doesn't want to be, but is, which is in your inbox. And so the way I tried to summarize this somewhat later on in a kind of a weird follow-up post was like the real zero in inbox zero is the amount of your attention, the amount of your attention that goes into an inbox when you'd really prefer that it be focused on something different. So it's zero attention, not zero emails. Again, another theme in this document that I imagine will frustrate some people is you have so much more of a role in your life than you want to realize. You have so much Mm -hmm. more agency for stuff in your life than it's comfortable talking about because it's so much easier to find all these reasons why things are the way they are. And it's you let that in. And you can also choose to let it out. Open the door. Let that dog Mm -hmm. free. If that's an inbox Mm -hmm. you don't need, if it's a source of uncertainty that's not the theme, I guess, if I had to put it one way, is like, it's up to you to decide if this thing that you claim you have to do is a thing that's actually making you better, is making you happier, or is ultimately making you closer to the person whom you'd like to be. If it's not contributing to that, why is it in your life? Again, to quote the great David Allen, everything in your life is important. If everything in your life isn't important, whose fault is that? That sounds fancy, but like that's Again, show me the lie. What's the alternative? You know, I have all these priorities. No, you don't have priorities. You have one priority. I don't know what it is, but you do. If you think you have 10 priorities, you're nuts. You have, there's only so many things. Priorities are not about what you choose to do. It's about the 10,000 things you choose not to do. It's about moving all these things off the shelf except for one. If you want a different priority, you take that other thing off and put this one up. And I don't need people to agree with me on that. But if you find the quote unquote inbox zero such as it is, that's in big scare quotes, is a thing that has you sitting in a chair on Friday night missing your kid's dance recital because you haven't responded to all your email, which, let's be honest, in 2004 was very much what people thought. If you got an email, you respond to it. Like, Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to throw it away. That's mean. That's not collegial. But like, how do you get to a level? If you want to have your world be different, it's there's one person in the world that can change that. And that includes factoring in all the stuff that you don't have control over, but 
something's got to give. There are 8 billion people on the planet, as you well know, and our show is called One of 8 Billion. It has very mixed feelings for me when I think about being one of 8 billion, either really connected to the rest of the community in my local community, and that makes me feel bigger, more connected to everyone on the planet. And sometimes it just makes me feel really tiny and insignificant and in a good way, not in a bad way. When you think about the planet and all 8 billion people on it, and then you also think about the universe and how big our galaxy is compared to the universe and all those other billions of planets and galaxies out there, how does it make you feel? Yeah. The galaxy one or the universe one is I have a much more visceral relationship with. I can watch those videos about how big the universe is all day and I, it makes my head spin. I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't think that much about how many, I don't think that often. And again, we'll see also Wisdom Project. What does this information make me believe? What, okay, so there's a piece of information in the world. What does that make me see, think, decide, and do differently? That is a real quick and dirty test that I, whenever I'm in a quandary about something and you know, I say to myself, what, is, what am I supposed to do with this? And on the day-to-day, that the 8 billion number does not have a huge impact on me, I think, a lot of times, the way that we make a connection with our hearts and our heads is with specificity and particular people. Mm-hmm. We talked about this on Dubai Friday just this week. You know, there's a reason we remember Anne Frank. How many other of the six million people can you name by name? It's the specificity of those, a given one of those eight billion. That does not have a huge effect on me. What I will say is, and boy, this became so apparent to me during COVID. Just the United States alone. Our country is so freaking big and so weird. And people like to go on about, yes, we, we are. We're very divided. That's very true. But like the thing that really struck me, you know, the phrase, the coastline of Scotland problem. Have you heard that yes. phrase? Yes. The idea, the idea is that like measuring anything of an irregular shape, the if you want to do the, the perimeter or the area or any of that stuff, it all changes depending on the size of the tool that you're using, using to measure. It's a and co- so, the coastline paradox, right? It depends yeah, on yeah, the yeah. zoom or you it can't, depends like, on the... If you measure this coastline of Scotland with a ruler, a 12-inch imperial ruler, it's going to be really different than if you use some kind of nanometer, I guess. And that, to me, in the United States, especially during COVID... Something I should have realized a long time ago really started to occur to me, which is it's so difficult. I think in life, especially if you're a liberal arts major, it's difficult to say anything about anything. It's difficult to say anything conclusively about anything because there's so many exceptions to every rule. Or there's so many, like when you say something like, oh, what's it like politically? What's it like in Berkeley, California? And you go, well, yeah, yeah, it's generally pretty progressive, pretty left-wing. What's it like in Bozeman, Montana? I'm guessing it's probably pretty conservative. But mm-hmm. you say that about state. Let alone about a country. You say that about a state like California. Dude, have you been to California? It's it's so weird because there are parts of California that are very progressive. And there are parts of California. Ronald Reagan is from California. You go like so east in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But here's the thing. It doesn't stop there. Let's talk about San Francisco. I happen to live in one of the most conservative neighborhoods in San Francisco. It's a lot of people who are first and second generation immigrants from Ireland and China and other Asian countries. And like, it's very conservative. Okay. Is California progressive? Yeah. In parts. What about San Francisco? San Francisco has got to be very well, actually, no, it's funny you say that because where I live. So when we talked about stuff like reactions to mask policy during COVID, or we talked about the, all these feelings, we, it's so much easier to report that story in chunks. If you feel like you can confidently say, X place is Y in nature, but it's true in a household. How do you talk about the 1,000 square feet in which my three family members and a lizard live? Like you can't say, and what about, okay, and then what about time? I I hate to sound like such a hippie. I don't know if this is making any sense, but when I think about the 8 billion in the world, what I think about ultimately is the difficulty of saying anything conclusive about any group of those people all the way down to even just one person. Because ask me what I want for lunch you know, at 10 a.m. when I'm not hungry. Ask me what I want for lunch when it's 3 p.m. and I'm starving. That's the same me. That's the same bag of meat at both times. Even in 24 hours, those are going to be very different. And that might sound silly, but when I think about the 8 billion, that's what I think about is like, and of course I do think about things like income inequality and filthy water and I heard a story this morning on a podcast about this place that mines Bitcoin in Texas. 
that uses half of the energy of the city of Lubbock, Texas. I think about stuff like that in a, in a state. Yeah. That's so yours. in a state wow. where the electric grid has been shown to be, look up a slate podcast called what next. It's really good. It's the daily from the New York times, but it doesn't have oh, Michael yeah. Barbaro saying the word a lot. It's a really good show, but that's what I, I of course I think about those sorts of things, but I don't, there's not a ton of things I can do. I stopped using plastic straws a long time ago, but Taylor Swift is still flying quite a lot. I think maybe to the point where it's offset my straw stopping. <laughs> That's what I feel. Yeah, it makes, me feel big, it makes me feel small. There's a wonderful movie from 1977, I want to say, put out by the Eames group. That's, have you ever seen Powers? I think it's called Powers of Ten. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Yeah. CGP Grey did a, a similar thing recently, but it's the idea of powers of 10 is you start out with looking at a couple having a picnic in Boston and you say this, the size of this area is this many meters by this many meters. And then you go up orders of magnitude until you're in oh, space yeah. and you go down yeah. orders of magnitude until you're like inside <sighs> a nucleus or inside of, and I find stuff like that really that same childhood part of my brain where I first learned about the concept of infinity. And it was like sniffing glue for me. I could just think about mm -hmm. infinity and it would break my brain so hard <laughs> is that it was intoxicating. That's mainly what I think about is as much as there's so many ways we're all the same, there's so many ways we're all different. And every time you think you understand something, it's useful to problematize it by asking how much of your own SHIT leads you to believe that about a given person, let alone an entire group. And how would you feel about them describing what they think about you based on their SHIT? Eight billion is a yeah. lot of people. It's gone up. It's Eight gone billion up a, lot. a lot of people. Even in my lifetime, yeah. it's gone up a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember when it was six billion, and I thought, wow, I remember that's a lot above that. Jeez. When I was a kid, Burger you know? King had a commercial that was on all the time, and I was a big TV kid. Surprise! And it starts out with this: two hundred million people, each doing their own thing. And now it's, that was 19, probably 78. And now we're at th over 300 million. How do we do that in 30, 40 years? I guess closer to 50 years, but that's wild. Yeah, but, it yeah. Is, isn't it? Anyway, Jeez. 8 billion, 8 billion makes my head hurt. Don't like it. Well, if there's one thing I can say about those 8 billion, just thinking about all the individual differences that you talked about and how you might feel for lunch and so on, I realize that there are all these differences, but like the one thing I can say about it is we're human, right? We are human and we have a lot of the same hangups. Yeah. I, I, I only, I don't even feel uh, QED, what I said a few minutes ago about America. I don't even feel qualified to say this about America, but I do feel like there is something uniquely American in some ways about the way that we tend to think. There's a phrase, a line in a movie I like called Rules of the Game that goes something like, that's the terrible thing in life is that every man has his reasons. Everybody has their reasons. And but we do have this weird cognitive bias, especially in America, where we tend to believe that all of our problems are because of other people and everybody else is evil and lazy. <laughs> and that's a life journey of mine is trying to get yeah. less bad at thinking that either the world is out to get me or that I'm the only I'm the only not stupid person left. Yeah, and it's weird also to think that the outside world, outside of the United States, thinks about America in two very different ways. In my experience, there is the camp that thinks America is awful and mm -hmm. that you would never want to live here and you would never want to be an American and everything we do is wrong. And then there's the camp that thinks, oh my God, America, what a great place to be yourself. What a great place to make your own life. I wish I could be there. But also that's and, relatively culturally agnostic though, is there's so many countries, I, I can't speak for you, but I feel like most countries, especially in Europe, have this, that exact same, like not exact same, but a similar, oh my gosh, I love Levi's and Westerns. I love movies so much. I like, boy, it's so neat that we can go to a store and get whatever you want. But then on mm -hmm. the other hand, it's, yeah, but we also, we've done a lot. We're very selfish and we are very mean and we've done a lot of really crummy stuff and you have to hold both of those ideas in your head. I heard somebody say something once. I don't know if this is true, but it's a factoid. I'll look it up someday. They say that people from the United States are the only people in, are the only people not just in first world countries, but the only people in the world who so frequently feel, what's that wonderful word? Culture shock. They're the only people who feel culture shock returning to their home country. Well, like you go to England and it's, oh, everybody gets healthcare and there's public transit. And you come back here and you're like, oh my God, other countries have figured out how to solve 
so many problems. Yeah. If you, whether or not you love bikes, if you go to Amsterdam and then come back to the United States, you're going to be like, I don't understand why it has to be this way. It doesn't. It's it what you were saying doesn't. earlier about your inbox. Amsterdam it's used like to be like that, and us. they fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And you love bikes too. I read recently you you have an e-bike you're riding around San Francisco. It's definitely a different way to see the world. I've been a an ardent pedestrian. I'm very happy to say that in that very conservative neighborhood in which I've lived since 1999, it's a very walkable. It's like a top like at least 10, maybe top 5% walkable neighborhood. I know it gives me a certain point of view. Let's put it this way. When I lived in Florida, that is not a point of view I ever had exposure to. All I knew was cultures where you had to, and I'm not anti-car, I'm anti-only car, where cars were the only way to do things and the cities were mm. built around them. And I could go on about this all day, but yeah, becoming a pedestrian in San Francisco gave me a very different view of the world. Becoming somebody who rides a dorky Segway around gave me an even different one. And then finally, for the first time since college, having a bike even still at the grand old age of 55, I think. Yeah. I can still, I'm still learning new things about how to see the world and how to appreciate the impact of hmm, decisions. I don't want to sound mean about it, but like the impact of like decisions we made in the thirties, forties, fifties, it's really, it's been very humbling and educational for me. What do you like about your e-bike the most? I like going fast on it sometimes. The usual snarky stuff of there are certain trips in parts of San Francisco where it's definitely faster to go on a bike. The thing that I'm an advocate for, if anything, I'm not. I'm very interested in the folks, people like Strong Towns and things who talk about how to rethink the way we make cities. I think that stuff's incredibly useful, big picture stuff. But the thing, if there's anything that I am an advocate for, it's not having, how do I put this? It's having options. Like it's nice. And obviously this is going to be dependent a lot on where you live. But like if your entire life has been spent somewhere where there's only cars, like I spent most of my life, it's understandable that you haven't, I'm not being condescending. I'm being really honest. I, to me, like when I grew up, when I was a young adult in Tallahassee, Florida, bikes were for like college students and people with DUIs. You throw garbage at them. Like it's, that's the culture there. Having options where I can think about a thing that I would like to see change in the world, even if that means getting $100 from the ATM. And I can say to myself, do I want to walk there? Do I want to scoot there? Do I want to bike there? I probably don't want to drive there. But like for anything you choose to do in an area, I think it's nice to have more than one way to do it. Oh, that's even leaving out public transit, which was better before the pandemic, unfortunately. But you know what I'm saying? It's mainly this idea yeah. of the constraints of imagination that leave us thinking that if I'm not in a car, like I'm a poor. Yeah. And this kind of comes back to the original idea of freedom as well. The options and the ideas that, oh, I could take a bus there. I could ride my e-bike there. My friend Dan, who I used to live with in college, used to say, you are your options, which I think is a little extreme. But sometimes I think the, the point of trying to pad what you have to say should not be at the point necessarily when you're saying it. It's true. You are your options. And if your option right now is get in a car or don't go anywhere, that if you do that every day or face that decision, non-decision every day. If you have a room in your house where two cars live and then you drive them to another place where you drive into a room, a garage and get out, yeah, like yeah. that's going to really constrain your imagination about things. And again, see also how Americans are. It's understandable that people see bikes, pedestrians, scooters, public, they see all of that as poverty and damage. And like mm -hmm. it's screwing mm -hmm. up their roads. And I'm sympathetic to that. It's I do agree with you, though. It's nice to have options, but it's also, as somebody who can watch my kid flip through the 300 movies we've bought, I watched this just last night, watching my kid flip through the 300 movies we own on our Apple TV. And like I said to my kid, if we had two movies, you would have no trouble picking at all. So how, how old is your kid? My kid's uh, How old 14. is your kid? 14? Yeah, nice yeah. Teenager. But it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a hell of a country. You just got to eh, keep your head about you. I'm curious to know the origin of your handle, Hot Dogs Ladies. Is it, where did that come from? Do you want to guess? You don't have to guess specifics. Do you want to guess, <sighs> you know, guess gen I, generally? I, like, I originally thought it was a purposeful misspelling. Then today I thought about it, and we have wiener dogs, and I thought, oh, maybe he's a sausage dog fan. Oh, um, are they dark-haired or blonde? They're blonde. They're long-haired. My wife wants a blonde doxy so much. 
Okay, I have advice for you. Okay, say it, I save can it. Tell you. Save it for the show. Okay. One of my favorite novels that I arrived at surprisingly late in life, there's a wonderful book that was not written, but published in 1980 called A Confederacy of Dunces. I know the book. This is By a John, great book. Yeah, it's a great book. John Kennedy Tool. And I had not discovered that book. I was actually a guy in, in my band back in Florida. I was like, oh, you would love this book. I'm like, yeah, I've heard of it. I don't know much about it. I finally read it. Do you remember when Ignatius is just as a pirate and pushing the cart around and arrives at the ladies' fancy garden party? Yeah. With a simic. What is this line? Uh, Something like, Hy- savories from the hygienic kitchen. And he shows up at this, all the garden ladies are shocked that Ignatius is there with his scimitar and his pirate hat and his hot dog cart. Yeah. He looks at them yeah. and he says, hot dogs, ladies. Okay, penny drop. Now I get it. Yes. One time, one time, like everybody, I have, especially in the younger days of the internet, it used to be pretty easy to get whatever name you wanted for things. And I think I specifically remember it was I needed a second handle on Yahoo in particular. And I just, I'm sitting there looking at the field and going, oh, I don't want, I'm no John Syracuse, but I refuse to be like Merlin, the real Merlin manned. The real Merlin man, one nine seven six five eight nine. Forget it. I, I talk, hot dogs, ladies. And then kind of, I won't say it's stuck because I'm the one that stuck it. But yeah, that's where it comes from. Good book and worth rereading. Still very funny. I think I might do that. Yeah, good idea. Is there anything you hope you'll see in your lifetime? Oh, the hard that one. you haven't seen yet that you might well, like to see. I I don't. I hope it's obvious that I, I'm trying to avoid giving the answers everybody gives just to sound like a nice person. Oh, yeah, of course. I want everybody a peace, world peace. What? But yeah, world peace. At first, I was thinking that I, I was going to say this and I, I was going to withdraw it, but I guess I'm saying it. This is my second runner up is I wish more people could figure out how to get along with the people that they love or the people they should be able to love. But I'll, I'll set that aside for now. I am a little bit, I'm not successful at this, but I'm a little bit of a nerd a geek, whatever you want. See? Right there. Okay, perfect example. Why did I say nerd and geek? Because it means different things to different people. I wish more people could get with nuance and subtlety. I wish we would, and I'm not even trying to be a word prescriptivist, but I feel like not just Twitter, but in the world, we are except in the most extreme, small, tight groups, we're losing a lot of our interest in context. We're losing a lot of our interest in subtle distinctions and differences. And we can't help but fall into a certain kind of black and white thinking, especially online. I wish Mm. we could get more okay with nuance and subtlety and honestly, empathy. I wish, and those all sound like things about Twitter because now Twitter is life, unfortunately. And I wish more Mm. people on Twitter and in life, honestly, like seriously, like the jokes have left the room, as the McElroy say, jokes have left the room. What I'm really saying is, can we give each other a break? And if you see somebody who used to be a piece of crap, who's tried really hard to be less of a piece of crap, can we celebrate the fact that they're trying to not be terrible? Do we have to turn everybody into these two zones? I'm, I hate to sound like some kind of, I don't know, anti-woke person, because that's not what I mean at all, but can't we get more okay with having more groups than me and then everyone who's terrible? Do we have to get everybody sorted into a group of the people who are in my way and me? And like part of that is nuance and subtlety stuff. Let's review stuff like I'm hungry at three. I wasn't as hungry at 10, yet I'm still the same person. In my life, what I'd like is to see, I don't know how this would happen, maybe some kind of Gaia bomb or an extremist virus, but something that makes it less difficult for us to give each other a break and to give ourselves a break and to appreciate the little contrasts, the little distinctions and the uses of nuance or the instances of nuance and subtlety that can make life so much richer than just being a line that we maintain. I hope we can see that too. That would mean more hugs around too. Do people ask you what your understanding? Do you, do you get the chance to uh, do people ask you that question? Have you already shared no, that? No, they don't. They don't. And as you were talking about it, I was wondering what mine would be. And I think mine would be, I wish that we had more of an opportunity to hug each other, to love each other, mm-hmm. that I don't think that, I don't think we have that. We, well, I know we don't have that, but we've lost that ability to see the differences and be okay with them. Totally and, agree. Yeah. 
And it's it, that's sad. And it's, it's, we don't want to be vulnerable. I think we really are very. I yeah. think it's very. There's all kinds of. You could put it a million ways, but I think if you had to summarize a lot of it, it's considered not. It's undignified. It's unmasculine. It's unsuccessful. There's so many things about vulnerability that even the idea of vulnerability, I think, makes a lot of people extremely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And for all kinds of reasons, including, honestly, branding reasons. Like, I've got to stick to this dumb thing I said because that's my deal or whatever. I just, I totally agree with you, though. And, like, my only way, my only small way into that, and again, from the project, sometimes it's actually easier not to be terrible. Catch yourself in the moments where you could not only be less terrible, but you might be the best interaction that somebody had today. Try to look for opportunities mm. to not make it about your deal. Try to, which of course, obviously I struggle with, but that's, I think that's the only part of it. It sounds so, I don't know. It sounds like self-help or hippie stuff, but like the greatest well, the question you didn't ask me that I thought the most about was like, what's your struggle and like I, I was going to ask you that next, oh, yeah. but I feel like we're running out of time, and I don't care that we're running show. out of time. So, so it's your let's, show. yeah, I'm gonna keep going. Yeah. I'm gonna. Can keep you edit around this? Will well, you edit around this and make me sound smart? Oh, you know what? We just keep mm. going. This is real, right? This is the nuance that people need to be Could able be. to hear. What, there's no, be. yeah, there's no reason. Yeah, yeah. There's no rules. Yeah, yeah, tell me, what is your greatest struggle in life? I could can very. I feel like I can very confidently tell you that in my younger days, it was about finishing things on time. And and this is really corny, but like my greatest struggle is remembering to do the things that help me become the person I'd like to be. And there's a lot in that if you really sit with it for a second. My, you notice that I did not say be a better person. No, because there's a lot more to it than that. And stuff changes in life. Yeah. And adulthood is hard. And as I have to tell my poor kid, a lot of times. Your teacher knows the assignment is BS. Your dad and mom know the assignment is BS. You certainly know the assignment is BS. But you know what? You not only got to do it, even though it's BS, you might have to do it because it's BS. And it shows right. like that's there's these like Kobayashi Maru moments in being an adult that there is not a winnable way. But as with the it's been revisited several times in a nut. There's a test that they, I don't want to hate to spoil this for you, but there's a test that they give to cadets at Starfleet Academy called the Kobayashi Maru scenario. And you've seen it, you might've seen it in the movies or in various TV shows, but the nut of it is, well, without going into too much detail, you're without you knowing it, you as the captain in this exercise have been put in a situation that is unwinnable. You have to, mm. you've been told to go, there's a distress, distress call. And if you go and save the people on that ship, you'll be entering into an area where you will almost definitely, you'll be crossing into like Klingon territory and they will kill you. So what do you do? And the thing is the whole, what, here's the beautiful part. You do the test, no matter what happens, you lose. If you try to rescue the people, you get killed. If you don't rescue the people, die, and the Klingons kill you anyway. Okay, so what's the point of that? I love this. I'm so glad I got to tell you this. Kobayashi Maru seems like it's a test of your leadership. It seems like it's a test of, I mean, you could even say it's how you handle a tough situation. Kobayashi Maru is ultimately a test of your character because they need to know what you will do when you're in a position that cannot be won. How will you conduct yourself? Who will you be mm. when you cannot mm -hmm. save the crew and passengers of the Kobayashi Maru? That's, I think that's what a lot of life is. There's a lot of Kobayashi Maru in life. And again, we tend to look at all the external factors that make things the way that they are, instead of saying like, how do I want to conduct myself in this? Not for brand management, but just because I can find my whole life a lot more tolerable if I'm doing, again, doing, you know, to make and to do, hacer. In Spanish. I need to make and do the things that get me closer to the person I'd like to be. And I need to reject or minimize or just evict the things that keep me cleft to somebody I never should have been. And that's, mm. that's the struggle. That's then the struggle is real. And I'm not even saying that to sound like a smart 55 year old guy. I, obviously I'm full of crap, but I do think that's true. And I, but at the same time, I try not to beat myself up about not doing the things I'd like to do, but there is a mindful way to approach life that says, what if I wanted to be less terrible today? What if I wanted to be more supportive of people who don't deserve my help? What if I wanted to do all these things that like are the characteristics I see in people whom I admire? And I guess on a practical basis, so you're hoping you don't want to look in the mirror or sleep at night or all that nonsense. But it's more like, hey, this is an adventure we all get, man. Like you, there, you can't control everything. 
and you don't control nothing. And so the art is figuring out in between what you can do and how you will be on the day the Kobayashi Maru asks for your help. I want to be the person that saves that ship and believes that there is hope that you can get out of that Klingon attack. Okay, I, I'm gonna. I, I'm like, not gonna spoil that's... this for you. I'm not gonna spoil this for you, but I will tell you that there is one person. How shall I phrase this? There's one person that we know of who did not fail at the Kobayashi Maru. And if you want, I will tell you off air how they did that. I w- I will love to hear that off air. You so can start by Kobayashi watching the. Uh, if you don't mind the Kelvin universe, I would check out the J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek movie from a few years back. Thor, the guy who plays Thor, is Captain Kirk's father, and and Captain Kirk steals a car and listens to Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. It's a very fun movie, and it does have a, <laughs> it does have a very prominent Kobayashi Maru. Beastie Boys, yeah. Okay, Listen all y'all. It's will, a sabotage. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Tell me a little bit about you. Look nice today. I always thought that was a wonderful. Just a great description of something. Like it doesn't matter what it is. You look yeah. nice today. You look like, nice today. I want to be involved in that. What is that? Tell me more uh, about it. You it, was know? A, a, it was, and sometimes is, but mostly was, a podcast with Adam Lissagor, Scott Simpson, and me. And it was a podcast, and um, it was really good and really funny. And it's one of the best things I've ever been involved with. We were three pals who met via Twitter, oddly enough, and... God, you should see all the names we threw out. They're so bad. Like anytime you learn what something was almost called, it's always so appalling. But eventually Adam came up, uh, Lonely Sandwich, as it used to be known, came up with that name, You Look Nice Today. So basically it was just the three of us. I don't want to call it improv because we're not like trained, but like we would just start talking. And I think if you had to come down to what is the bit of the show, was three white guys talking. As my daughter likes to remind strangers, you should ask my dad about the show where he invented three white guys talking. And I'll say, thank you very much, honey. <laughs> um, but we, what would often happen, or some of my favorite episodes anyway, are where we start off talking about whatever, like something. We talk about the how Scott's run went that day or whatever, but it almost always lands on some kind of a very inadvisable business project. And once we've landed on what the inadvisable project would be, it's fun to explode it into the stupidest idea you've ever heard in your life. Like the idea of being hired by the country of Dubai to show their wealth by building an entire country of Dubai on top of Dubai, <laughs> where but you wouldn't have a place to put your tools and we got to figure out how to deal with that. Doing a, doing a musical about unhoused people who use the library on Larkin Street downtown called Checking Out. Or checking in was the name of the show. Like what other uses for libraries? And, you know, stuff like that. It was a lot. It was a lot of fun to do, and we've brought it back in various ways a couple times. But yeah, that show's a lot of fun. I really lo- love doing it. Adam was the guy who did all those videos with yeah. those commercials and stuff, and he was the one that was actually in them. Is that every I have time right, Adam? Yeah, every time you're in a hotel room, and you see an ad for an automobile company or start like an online automobile company you see a guy who looks kind of like stanley kubrick that's adam that's adam yeah that's... yeah he's a he's a beard, bearded yeah, fella yeah. very handsome guy uh inventor of the fish stick our dance craze but yeah those three guys three of us together a lot of fun those three guys he says about himself in the third person but no it was really <laughs> it was so fun to do and i'll tell you i'll tell you i'm really self-involved uh, non-secret about myself where like a person could be forgiven for saying, what, you like your own podcast? You laugh at your own podcast? And honestly, my my no joke response to that is, do you not like your show? If I don't <laughs> like it, how could I possibly expect anyone else to like it? So, Guess what? That's so 80% true. of podcasts today. Oh, how about I read over an audio <laughs> bed for 52 minutes and have an ad for Rocket no. Mortgage? Yay. We need more of those. I, I, If I didn't like doing it, I wouldn't do it. If it didn't make me happy, I would feel weird continuing to pursue it. I, uh, yeah, I, I like gonna, what I do. I'm I was, lucky. I was going to ask you what brings you joy these days and what makes you smile, but I think I can hear the things you're doing do that. But I'll ask oh, you. I'll kind ask of, you anyway. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, tell, oh, as far as what brings me joy, yeah. I don't know. I've gotten really back because of a podcast I love called Blank Check Podcast. I've it's a show where they do like movie series on directors. Just apropos of nothing, they recently covered the films of the choreographer and director Bob Fosse. And I've enjoyed Bob Fosse for a long time. I've really, I finally watched the Fosse Verdon show with Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams on Hulu. That's really good. But I'm also now reading the book upon which Fosse Verdon is based, which is called, strangely enough, Fosse by a guy called Sam Wasson. 
I'm really enjoying that. In terms of stuff that brings me joy, I love watching people dance. I didn't appreciate that when I was a kid. My wife and I talk about this. I thought dancing was dumb when I was a kid. And now I'm like, now that I'm a man who wears a, lives always in search of a better knee brace, I watch people dancing, whether that's singing in the rain or Anne Ranking. I watch people dance and I'm like, I just, this is indistinguishable to Arthur C. Clarke. This is indistinguishable from magic to me, watching how people Mm. dance. Other one, I thought, I guess technically I can move rhythmically in an upsetting way. Okay, so we're in the same we're in the same boat. Oh, I, no, I I can't either, and that's okay because I can watch. No, other people absolutely. Dance too, and, well, you know, I'm no joy, I'm no Bob right? Fosse. Yeah, as far as what brings me joy, you, uh, because you asked, and I was this is what I was looking at when you asked, or like when I read your question earlier. There's a Twitter account called Pants. It's at Pants, and uh, Pants is a guy who draws things. I can't describe it, but it's very funny and it delights me. There's some Twitter accounts. There's this one that's a company that grooms dogs in Japan, and they take a photo of each dog after it's been I've groomed. I've seen that one. I've oh, seen that one. Oh, it makes me so it's... happy. And with a little derpy tongue yes. sitting, sticking out. And I find mm-hmm. I want to be, I would like to be a mentor to each one of those dogs. And sometimes at night on Twitter <laughs> when I'm having a drink, I will address the dog via Twitter. And I will say what I think would be encouraging for that dog to hear. And then can I tell you the truth? I realized the dogs are my mentor because I needed to hear that. And it took that derpy tongue and that bulbous eye to make me realize that Coco-chan is a very good boy. (laughs) Oh, that's so lovely. Check out Pants, at Pants. At Pants. Oh, it'll be linked. I'm on the site right now or the page right now. I just followed them. So thanks a lot. Latest one, with the cat, latest one with the cat helmets is very strong. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that's, I think that's uh, it. I, Don't you need to go? Don't you need to go do stuff? I do. Like, I need here? to go. I, <laughs> yeah. I do need to go. We can always do it again. Have me back. Okay. I've had so much fun talking to you, Merlin. I appreciate the time. Aww. So gracious. And I love talking to you. You're so easy I to really, talk to. I really, I super appreciate you inviting me. And I even more appreciate your saying that. Thank you. That was very good to say. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. I hope you'll join us in the next episode of One of Eight Billion, when we hear from the executive editor of Thrifty Traveler, Kyle Potter. Travel wasn't really a big part of my life until I met my wife and we started traveling a lot more and got my first taste of what would become such an integral part of my life just five or six years ago when my wife and I went on a big trip to Thailand, Vietnam, and Japan for three weeks. That was a turning point in my life that didn't immediately start what has now become my career, but definitely put me on that path because I was pretty hooked from that point forward. This has been One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us, online at oneof8b.com. Join us again next time as we listen to One of Eight Billion Other Stories. One of Eight Billion is supported by 10.7, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Find out more at 107.com. I'm Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening.